You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. If you have your Bibles tonight, we are going to begin a brand new series. And this will be perhaps... Um, uh, I don't want to say, I, I, I hate to say the most important series, because how can you pick a series and say this is the most important thing? Because we can't pick and choose portions of Scripture. We need the whole of Scripture. But I would say that this is a most important series because of the significance of it. It establishes so many things And what we are going to be looking at for the next few months is this series entitled Origins, Amen, A Study of Beginnings. Now, you did hear me correctly. I said the next few months. Turn to somebody and tell them you heard them right. You heard them right. Amen. For those of you that uh, enjoy a little humor, sometimes you have fun Uh, when I get up here and say we're going to do a series for two or three or four weeks, and then it ends up being twice as long as that. So I thought this time I'm just going to tell you it's going to be super long, and if I end early, you're going to be, you know, it's going to be great. But but this probably will take us at least a couple months, at least a couple months. And the the topics that we're talking about here are, are going to be very critical and, and ever relevant to us. I believe this series is going to be fun. I think it's going to be uh, long compared to what we are normally used to. At times you may find it predictable. At times you may find it revealing. But I pray that at all time you would at least find it inspiring for your life. This series is entitled, titled Origins, A Study of beginnings. And specifically, we are going to be walking through the book of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. The book of Genesis is a large book. We are going to take the next couple, next few months to walk through 11 chapters of Genesis. And tonight, we will not even get to chapter 1. Amen. But everything in chapters 1 through 11 contain origins to most of the matters of life, most of the matters of life, most of the issues of life. And this is the record. This is the account. This is the place where these matters, these issues, these beliefs, theologies, topics... These are first mentioned here, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And in this study, we will endeavor to walk through and establish the foundations by which I propose to you that all of Scripture is built upon and almost all refers back to as a reference point. Now, here is why... It is a most important series. It is because Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are the most contested 
passages of Scripture. It is the most targeted passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 are under the most attack, not only from hell, not only from Satan, not only in the spiritual realm, but it's under the most assault from the likes of humanism and secularism and modernity today. There has never been, amen, a time that seems to have been more pronounced against Genesis chapter 1 through 11 than today. And the irony or the tragedy is how much these chapters are not only under attack from a secular and humanistic point of view, but they are surrendered or even under attack within the greater realm of Christianity, the broader scope, the loose scope of Christianity. So much of Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is reduced to just allegory, to just typology, and it is brought down to the level of the ancients' mythology, mythological things, and it's not realized as the forever settled Word of God. And so that is why I would take the next few months, if it takes us that long, to walk through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. It's divided, the book of Genesis is divided into two major sections, and the two major sections in its structure, literary structure, is seen in chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through the rest. The first part of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, is often referred to as primitive history. It is the beginning of the world's history all the way up through what we could probably say the account according to Scripture, half of the world's history is reduced down to 11 chapters. And then chapters 12 on through is what is referred to as the patriarchal history, beginning with the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on down through the life of Joseph. But it's these chapters 1 through 11 that summarize and speak of the major events, the first mention of so many critical ideas, concepts, theologies, and topics in this short passages of Scripture. It contains half, let's say, of the account of humanity according to Scripture. Here's a sample of some of the major topics that we will encounter in these next few months. Things like this. The simple thought or or the simple theology and the idea of God, the fact that there is a God, creation itself, time itself, the concept of time is authored and recorded here in Scripture. Humanity, humanity, who we are as human beings, our identity, our gender distinctions, 
the concept of our relationships founded in the institution of marriage, first off, the family, sexuality, man's purpose, the idea of free will, the idea of temptation. There's so many others, but these are a few of sin, original sin, of why there is pain and suffering in the world, of nakedness, of vulnerability, of clothing, of man's attempts and God's standard, of judgment and punishment, of separation from the Lord. There are many other topics that we could look at and we could cover, but these are the main that we will highlight and we'll speak about. And in our day and age, in this world, most of the things that I mentioned, people deny, people dismiss, and we have relegated most of these things to just, amen, our own opinions, our editorial. Four major events are going to be talked about Amen. In these chapters of which all of them are denounced, not only denounced, they are adamantly opposed daily in our own educational systems here in the halls of academia. These four major events are creation, the fall of man, the flood, and the dispersion. These are four critical events. These events so much explain most of our existence, why things are the way they are, how life actually goes about. And yet we so often see these dismissed. So it matters, I would propose to you, it matters how you handle Genesis 1 through 11. It is so vital. It is so critically important. If we do not get Genesis 1 through 11 right, Acts 2 is a mute point. Revelation 21 might as well have never been written. If we do not get Genesis 1 through 11 Right, And I will tell you that this will be the greatest opposed part that I could ever preach, that I could ever teach. And I am coming to you as a layman at best, a man who has given his life to the devotion, large part of it to the devotion of reading and studying Scripture, but I am not a scientist. I am not a historian. I am not a biologist. I am not a geologist. I am not an anthropologist. I am not even an apologist. I am just a preacher who has been given the Word of God. I'll try to walk you down some things. There's some big topics that we will have to talk about. We will have to discuss on maybe a little bit of an academic level. We'll have to look at different takes and different interpretations of Scripture. There is a myriad of interpretations and thoughts and concepts about Genesis 1 through 11, not only in the broad scope of Christianity, not only just in uh, evangelicalism, but even within Pentecost and specifically within the ranks of 
apostolics. Even in apostolics, I would disagree about certain interpretations of Genesis 1 through 11 as apostolics. I'm going to talk about that with you as pastor, how we navigate those, how we can uh, uh, come to a certain level of tolerance on issues that are not as some would say, tier one issues, but, but issues that, okay, we can have difference of opinions, but these are not going to change whether or not we are in fellowship and whether or not we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the main absolutes. But there are some dangers to certain things, so we'll navigate these together. There are some hard topics, and we are looking at an ancient language, an ancient context, and we're trying to bring it into a modern Western setting where we are so far removed from that type of living, and we're trying to interpret it, and we're trying to understand how does this impact our life and how do we go forward? And a lot of times there's been false assumptions because people didn't have enough knowledge. So that is what my burden is to you. It is to equip you, to equip you and to encourage you, to show you that you can stand on the word of God. You may not be able to answer every atheist and every scientist and every person, but when you come to a place to where you can know that the word of God is true, and while I may not be able to explain it all or even understand it all, I can stand upon the word of God and I can let my faith be strengthened. I feel the Holy Ghost in the house today. And we need to understand this. Here, I'm going to tell you, when our children enter, leave home so often and go to college, they go into the classroom. People aren't standing up. They're not attacking their way of living, their Christian way of living. They're not necessarily attacking uh, uh, the Holy Ghost, let's say, evidenced by speaking in a tongue. The world is not attacking, you know, uh, 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 its thought of baptism in Jesus' name. But where where the enemy attacks is he begins at Genesis chapter 1 through 11, and he begins pulling the threads out. He begins taking it out. And so I feel as anointed, as burdened, and as anointed to teach and to preach from Genesis chapter 1 through 11 as I would to take our text from Acts chapter 2 and 38, because I've prayed too many people through to the Holy Ghost, and I I've walked along with too many people that have had the Holy Ghost only to sit down and let some humanistic philosopher or, or a professor undermine everything and they walk out there, we'll walk out of class wondering, well, we couldn't have been created. God couldn't have been the creator. I'm just a cosmic accident and, and so there's no purpose in life. Amen. I'm here to tell you, you can stand on the word of God. Amen. You can stand on the word of God. Amen. Amen. Hear me tonight. You can stand on the word of God. And as Paul said, if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. Amen. But these are big issues, big topics. And so we can talk about them as Adults, I'm not going to candy coat things. I'm not going to hide things from you when we get to uh, 
the, the, the topic of creation, which we'll enter that very quickly. There's three big topics that are introduced in Genesis 1 and 1. The three major topics that are introduced in the very first verse of Scripture is number one, the fact that there is a God. In the beginning, God created. The fact that there is a God. Number two, that time itself began. In the beginning, there was a point where time didn't exist, and then there was a point where time began. That's hard for us as finite creatures to wrap our minds around. The third thing is creation itself. In the beginning, God created. Those are three massive topics, massive topics that affect everything. And so that's just in one verse. So we can stand on the Word of God. We can know God's Word is true. Now, we can have some differences of opinion. I have friends who have, in fact, you've heard me talk about it. I have friends who have different uh, thoughts on uh, creation, the day-age theory, the gap theory, uh, uh, even even some who would uh, flirt with theistic evolution. We'll talk about those. We're adults. We're big enough. We can talk about those. And I don't think it's going to sway your faith, but I'm going to tell you why where we should go and why we should go there, why the reasoning is there for, for there. I've studied a lot of those things in my own self to see if these are plausible. Are these things able to be maintained and held and yet not bring about the destruction of Scripture? So tonight we're going to get into uh, an introduction. This is just an introduction tonight. And everybody has a handout. Does everybody have a handout? If you don't have a handout, Raise your hand and the ushers will come around and they will bring you a handout. So how we handle Genesis chapters 1 through 9 is so important. It is so critical. It is of the utmost importance how we handle the Word of God. Now this is, pay attention to the, what I, the word I used. How we handle the Word of God is what's important. So I am not even as concerned about you if we come to something be it creation, the, the four major events we talked about, creation, the, uh, the fall, the flood, and the disperse, dispersion. There are uh, differences of opinions on that sometimes. And I'm not even as worried about you if you disagree with me, let's say. Where I am more worried is how you handle the Scripture and how you get to the point at where, where you're at, where you've arrived at. So that is so, so important, so critical. So we're going to start with this little introduction, and I, I'm taking uh, uh, from a book, 15 Reasons Why to Take Genesis as History, and I'm just highlighting five of them. Some of the others are good. They have merit, but these are some of the ones that sort of qualifies the main reasons, the main five reasons why I think we should take Genesis as history. And I'm jumping in here. Uh, there are many who think that Genesis should be read allegorically uh, or type as a typology, that maybe it didn't really happen. God was just uh, giving to Moses or Moses was just trying to record some things. And so they reduced, let's say, Genesis 1 and 2, the creative accounts. They reduced them down. Oh, they're just poetry. And he was just being illustrative. And he just wrote this to sort of explain, and, and this was speaking into their, their religious tradition, their cultural traditions, and he's just writing. So we don't really have to take 
Genesis as fact. They weren't as important on the details. They were just adding all of this stuff to it. And this is, this is a big thought. This is, a, this is a pervasive thought, I should say. It's a big pervasive thought. Now, one of the reasons why is because we don't handle books or they didn't have books the same way we have books. Today, we have a book. What do you do? The book has on the front cover, it screams with title and author. You open it up, the first thing you see is a copyright there. And that's not really how they had books. Their books weren't books, pages between covers. Their books were scrolls. And it was fabrics that were there. And sometimes they would even add to the scroll. They would sew in new fabrics. And so this concept and this thought comes back and says, well, you see, the Israelites, the Jewish people, in fact, have just sort of written all this history. By the way, you know, I'm not, this is not far-fetched. This is not far-fetched that there are still people today, people and nations today that claim that the Holocaust that never happened. You know that, right? They're, they go on record. There's this whole propaganda that the Holocaust never happened. You can go to used bookstores in St. Louis. I've seen them. You can find them. Old people making the case, arguing for that. Well, well, that's uh, uh, it's nothing new. Uh, Hitler uh, actually proposed that the Jews rewrote history to write their whole story, and so it wasn't right. And so they've just been adding in these things. They make it look right. The Jews were never, the Hebrews were never in Egypt. They made up that whole story. This is all just myth, and it's just been added into. And because of that, they added that into it. So we have to understand, is Genesis history, is it factual? Is it something we can look at as history? Or is it something that is just allegory? So five reasons why I would propose to you that Genesis is history. Now, I'm just a person that was born in 1980. What do I know? I'm so far removed from the account. I can't know. I can't go in my own flesh. I can know in the Holy Ghost, I guess you could say. But I can't go in my flesh and just say, okay, I know that this is true. But there are some things that we can follow along with to see if these are true. And we have to our benefit today, Brother Killian, more historical documentation proof access than ever before. It is amazing that the biblical account and actual the biblical documents have more proof to prove that they were written when they, when they, when were believed they were written, to, that they were written by eyewitness accounts than other documentation of other people. It's ironic that there was more written uh, contemporarily about Jesus Christ than there was about Alexander the Great, but yet there's no campaign out there to disprove that Alexander the Great was ever a real person or he was just a mythological figure, but yet there are whole people and movements and institutions that are arguing that Jesus was not real, was not, he was just made up, and yet there's more. It doesn't matter how much evidence you would have, and it doesn't matter how much they dig up in the Middle East, they still won't believe it because it's a spiritual issue. So five reasons why the Genesis record is actual events. Now, to the random person that comes in off the street that's an atheist, maybe these reasons don't mean anything to you, but here's they're going to mean something to us. So I've got to understand that I can't know everything, but what I can know, well, we'll get to it. 
I can know what other people said about what was written when it was written. So number one, the very first thing, you're going to fill in the blank. Number one, uh, do we have it on the screen? We can go up. Number one, Jesus understood the Old Testament as history. So the first thing you're going to write in is Jesus understood the Old Testament as history. Jesus did not permit for the Old Testament to be allegorical. He did not permit for it just to be a type or some kind of of mythology. He believed that it was history. In Matthew 5 and 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He believed that the law, what was the law? The Torah, they would call the Torah, the first five books of Moses specifically. They believed, he believed that not only was it actual and historical, but everything that it promised and everything that it predicted would come to pass. Now you say, well, he's, he says the law. He's not even talking about the prophets. The prophets had a lot of things that are yet to come to pass. What Daniel saw, what Ezekiel saw, Zechariah saw, what Isaiah saw, all those things are yet to come to pass. But we don't even get out of Genesis chapter 3 and God himself prophesied about Messiah that would come, about the crucifixion in Genesis chapter 3. If you've never seen it before, it's in there. About the crucifixion, but about Messiah's triumph over death, and that Messiah would be born of a human being. It would be the seed of the woman. God himself prophesied about that. And he said, he said, he will bruise his heel, speaking about serpent, but he will crush his head. That hasn't come to pass yet. So that is going to come to pass. Jesus was saying it as actual event. Jesus quoted, if you look under this as point two, Jesus quoted every book of the Old Testament as authoritative. Every single book as authoritative. You could underline that. It's very, very important. Jesus quoted every single Old Testament book as authoritative. That is why you and I have the canon that we have now, the Bible that we have now. You ever wonder how do the books of the Bible get in there? Well, The second temple period has a lot of extra uh, 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 curricular, I guess for lack of a better word, literature. And that is included, uh, some of that, not all of that, but different traditions uh, uh, would be included as the Apocrypha, the, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church would ascribe to that, and some others, but... Uh, we don't see those as inspired and, and canonic because Jesus does not quote from them, but he does speak from the other scriptures as authoritative. And note this in, in point three. In many places, Jesus said, it is written, or he would say to them, have you not read? And he would say that to settle an argument which substantiated not only his thought of the authority of scripture, but the culture at large understanding of the authority of Scripture. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he would come to them. They would understand that Scripture was authoritative and it was by God. Number two, the second reason why you should regard Genesis as actual uh, uh, history is that Jesus regarded the characters or the people of Genesis 1 through 11 as historical people. They were not made up people 
to uh, uh, summarize something, Adam was not symbolic of the beginning of humanity. Adam actually existed. Eve was not symbolic of the mother of all humanity, which is what a lot of people uh, uh, try to get around and say, well, Adam and Eve weren't just real people. They were symbolic of the beginning, and, and there's no way you know, that they could be real people. Well, okay, if you're going to call yourself a Christian or a Bible believer, then you have, to, you have to say Jesus was wrong, and then basically everything breaks down. Jesus regarded them as historical people. And you can see here, you can go and reference that on your own for the sake of time. You're going to trust me right now that these references match, but Jesus talks about Adam and Eve. He talks about Abel. He talks about Noah and the flood, not as symbolic, not as typology, not as allegory, but he talks about them as actual people, actual events that took place. And we'll dive into that a little bit deeper when we get to that place in the text. He also goes on, this isn't in Genesis 1 through 11, but he also talks about Sodom and Gomorrah as being an actual place. He talks about Jonah as being an actual person. A lot of people have taken Jonah. Well, there's no way a man could live in the belly of a whale for three days. Um, well, uh, Jesus said he was an actual human being, which means if it was actually possible, it's actually quite incredible that it took Jonah in the belly of the whale or the big fish, whatever it was, it took him three days before he actually got down on his knees and prayed. That's, I think, the more incredible thing in the story. <laughs> I mean, come on, folks. <laughs> okay, it's incredible enough that Jonah is swallowed by a big fish. The fact that he's swallowed by a big fish and it takes him three days. I'd been praying the moment that fish opened its mouth. <laughs> That's how stubborn Jonah was. He took three days. Jesus regarded them as real people. Number three, Genesis was written as history and not allegory. It was written as history. In the Holman Old Testament commentary, it says this, each book of the Pentateuch originally received its title from the first word or two in the book. For Genesis, the first Hebrew word is bereset, translated in the beginning. The English title Genesis is a transliteration of a Greek word and how do I say the Greek word there, Brother Killian? Geneseos or? Ganasos. There, I wasn't. Ganasos. I'm not even saying that right. How do you say it? Genesis or Ganasos. Okay. So it's transliterated that, and it's used in the Septuagint translation for the key Hebrew term, uh, Toledot, which means the generations of, the histories of, the account of, or also Origins. Genesis would mean origins, which is why we've titled this study Origins, a study of beginnings, because it's not just the beginning of time. It's not just the beginning of, of heaven and earth. It's not just the beginning of man. It's not just, it's the first mention of so many things. And so where you go back to the original source you would go to, for instance, for marriage, what does Jesus cite? He doesn't cite Moses' uh, uh, teachings of the law, 
Jesus cites for the institution of marriage the actual recorded account in Genesis chapter number 2. He goes back to that. So that's the foundation point. That's the starting point, if you will. So origin. So look at this, though. Um, The title literally means the generations of, the histories of, or the account of. So literally, it's talking about. And some people think, well, because he says the generations of, that Moses may have had access to uh, a genealogical list, which that doesn't take anything away from the inspiration. If he did or if he didn't, God could have given it to him himself. And we could talk about on Mount Sinai when Moses begins to write all this, he had a supernatural encounter with God. So if you can believe that Moses went up on Mount Sinai in the first place, carved out two tablets of stone, and the finger of God came down and wrote in the tablets of stone, then why is it not possible that God could have told Moses things he did not know, things that he was not present for, and God could have showed him everything there right before him. But the second point is that Hebrew uses special grammatical structures for historical narrative. And Genesis 1 through 11 uses those structures grammatically in its, in its writing. It is, this, it is written in the same form as Genesis chapter 12, which tells the narrative of uh, uh, the call of Abraham all the way through. It, it, it's written in the same form. Most of Exodus is written in that same uh, uh, historical narrative form. So it is not written in the Hebrew form of poetry or allegory. Uh, and so we'll talk about this. Some people believe that they there was oral traditions, and oral traditions were very, 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 very strong in the ancient world in that day, in that culture, and even within what we would call Judaism or the Hebrew culture as a whole. Orally, in fact, the Bible originally written was was not, we are blessed. The Bible originally written, God knew that most people would never be able to read the Bible. First of all, they couldn't read. Second of all, if they could, they couldn't carry around these massive scrolls. And so the Bible was intended to be heard orally. So they would gather together. That was why the gatherings were so important. They would read Scripture and they would tell the Scripture. And 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 uh, that was why it was so important when, uh, who was it, the young king, that found the scrolls and brought it back and revived the reading of the scrolls. That would be so important. So you are a blessed generation because we have the access right here to be able to read that. So it wasn't written in the form of poetry and allegory, even if it was, it, it, it made references to things that were passed down orally. Number four, both Old and New Testaments take Genesis as history. So not only did Jesus take it as history, both the Old and the New Testaments take it as history. So one of the most important hermeneutical principles, uh, and hermeneutics is the study of Scripture, What an important principle of hermeneutics, there's many principles of hermeneutics that you can sort of fall on, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So that's a hermeneutical principle. So under there, is that on your notes? Is that on your handout where it says that? Scripture interprets Scripture? If that's under there, underline that, circle that. That is very, very important. So Scripture interprets Scripture. So here's something, here's a tool you can take. Scripture interprets Scripture. So if a preacher gets up and preaches a passage of Scripture, 
that is interpreted differently somewhere else in the Bible. Don't trust the preacher thousands of years removed. Trust the scripture that was written before we were ever born. Scripture interprets scripture. So how does scripture interpret scripture? That's a very, very important principle, a law of hermeneutic. Within that principle is uh, the law of first mention. And that's why Genesis 1 through 11 is so critical and so important. The law of first mention establishes that whenever something is first mentioned in the, in the Holy Bible, in the, in the text, that sets the context and the understanding for something for interpretation later. And so that's how we would use that principle very justly in interpreting the book of Acts. In Acts chapter number two, on the day of Pentecost, what happened? On the day of Pentecost, they were all in one place, one accord. Suddenly a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind filled all the house where they were sitting there, appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them, and they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. So in chapter two, Luke writes in the book of Acts, that when the Holy Ghost fell, they began to speak with other tongues. In chapter 8, he also talks about that and references that. In chapter 9, or chapter 10, rather, he references that when he's writing. Cornelius was there. Peter comes and is preaching. And while Peter is preaching, Cornelius received the Spirit fell on them, he says. And he says, how did they know the Spirit fell on them? Because they heard them speak with other tongues. That was our identifier. And then in Acts chapter number 19, uh, 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 is, not, is, it, is it 19? Yeah, 19. They came and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost because he had not yet fallen upon them. And they, they gladly received, they were baptized and uh, they, prophet, they received the Spirit and they prophesied there. And so the law of first mention, it sets the context for how you interpret that. So you don't mishandle the text. So the way we want to handle the scripture, and that's why Genesis 1 through 11 is so important because there's a lot of first mentions here. And scripture interprets scripture. So what does it mean when it says in the first day? This is a big thing. What does it mean when it says in the first day? God did this. In the second day, God did this. In the third day, God did this. In the fourth day, God did this. In the fifth day, God did this. Sixth day, he, he, he creates the creeping people, uh, uh, creatures, the people. Seventh day, he rests. So day, Hebrew word day, I believe it's yom, can mean a set day. It can also mean a designated period of time. So in chapter 1, he uses the days. In chapter 2, he says... Of creation, he says, in the day that the Lord, this is the generations, he says, of heaven and earth in the day that the Lord created it. And so in chapter one, it talks about seven different days. In chapter two, it uses the same word to describe the day of creation. Then in Psalms, it says, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad. And it wasn't talking about a designated 24-hour period in that context. It was talking about the day of Messiah. That was a messianic psalm. It's talking about the work of Messiah. When we say this is the day which the Lord hath made, we're not talking about Wednesday. We're talking about the day of Messiah. Messiah has come. Messiah was crucified and he's resurrected. This is the day of Messiah. We rejoice in that. We don't rejoice because it's Tuesday or Wednesday and it's a good day. No, we rejoice in what Messiah has done. 
So you interpret scripture by scripture. So in, in the case of Yom, you wonder, okay, how do, how do we interpret this? Is this a 24-hour period or is this a designated period of time? So you have to interpret scripture by scripture. I'll give you a little hint. You go to Exodus chapter number, what, what is the cha- chapter 20? Summarizes the creation week. And in Exodus chapter 20, Moses says, he writes here that God created for it. When it's talking about the institution of the Sabbath, for in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that therein is, and rested the seventh day. So how do we interpret Genesis chapter 1? Well, you interpret Scripture by Scripture. So we got to go and look at we got to take all of these into account. So that is a healthy handling of Scripture. So if you and I disagree uh, on the length of the earth or the length of creation and all that stuff, I'm not as worried. Remember, I said I'm not as worried if you disagree with me. What I am worried about is how do you handle Scripture? So the hermeneutical law of that. So... Is that all right? I know that's very, very boring, but I just wanted to put that out there. Um, the New Testament makes 60 quotations or allusions to Genesis 1 through 11 as factual and historical. The fifth point, why you should take Genesis as actual facts. And this is a little tongue-in-cheek here. Is, this isn't as scientific. Because atheism requires naturalism. And Christians should not deny Genesis just to accommodate that. As has been the custom for the last 200 plus years. Christianity for the last 200 years has been trying to reconcile new discoveries on the scientific front with the biblical text. And I promise you, you'll make a mistake every day. Now, we may not understand all there is to know about what the scripture is saying because I'm so far removed from it. But one thing I will stand on every time is that the word is not wrong. The word is not wrong. I may be reading it wrong. I may misunderstand some things, but the word is never wrong. And I don't have to bend the word. I don't have to twist the word. I don't have to change the word. I don't have to make excuses for the word to try to accommodate some new science. And we are under a great, a great illusion today that science is absolute because it is not absolute. Just notice by how often they have to revise the textbooks. And every time, this is documented, folks. We're not making this up. Every time they revise the textbooks, they make the universe and all of nature and creation older. So one thing you can guarantee right now is that the textbooks that they're teaching or giving to your children today will be deemed obsolete in the next decade. That is the only consistent trend that is happening right now. Now, there are some absolutes, some certain things. Of course, it's funny. We're talking about absolutes. You talk about science. There's absolutes. They don't change, but yet we're throwing all kinds of absolutes out today. The Word says that there's absolutes. One of the greatest studies of Scripture is, one of the funnest studies in Scripture that I ever did was the book of Job. The book of Job is, 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 is usually acknowledged or, or, or thought to be one of the oldest written Books that perhaps Job was a contemporary with the time of Abraham, maybe even predated Abraham. 
but somewhere back in there, and he writes the account here of his, of his sufferings, of all the things that are going on in his, in his defenses, and in a lot of his accusations, there are references to the earth. And the book of Job in the scripture actually has more scientific affirmations and evidences than even the book of Genesis, than any other book in scripture. And the irony about the book of Job is that there was a day in an age hundreds of years ago where people thought the book of Job was crazy. And Christians back then, who we didn't have the scientific evidence to to follow it, some would say, oh, this can't be right. But there were many Christians who did stand on the book of Job without the scientific evidence to back it up. Things in Job talk about Job, for instance, the book of Job talks about light as being in a way and darkness being in a place. Before we knew that light was nothing more than energy and energy is constantly moving. So you cannot correctly describe light as being in a place, but darkness is the absence of energy and darkness is static. And so darkness does not move. And so darkness is in a place. Talks about in Job, it talks about the weight of the clouds. A lot of times they didn't even discover, I think it's on the books, that the discovery of vapor having weight has only been within the last like 350 years. And yet the oldest text, perhaps penned in all of Scripture, It's talking about things that we have only discovered in modernity. I don't know about you, but that gives me a a little bit more faith to say, you know what? I'm going to stick with the word of God (laughs) and not follow after science. So-called, let's say, because science is absolute and, and, and kudos and hats off to the many great scientists that are out there in technologies that we enjoy today and that we are blessed by. But atheism requires naturalism. If you're going to do away with God, logically, you have to be able to explain existence. Not only existence, you have to explain function. And so atheism requires naturalism. Naturalism, uh, uh, and from all of that naturalism, Uh, comes evolution. It comes a lot of other things. By the way, uh, Darwin did not invent evolution. I know we hail him as this great hero, but there were actually, there were actually people on record, written documents of people that predated Jesus and around the time of Christ that were already proposing the concepts of evolution. Darwin had a one degree, and his degree was in uh, theology, if I'm not mistaken. And he had a hard time uh, dealing with all these things, and so he travels the world. Not saying he wasn't a smart man, but the Bible says, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And I don't care how smart you are, how many times you can go to the moon, how much you can do, if you do not acknowledge the existence of God, The Bible says that the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. 
Atheism says there is no God. And it is an absurdity to be able to say there is no God because the only way you can say there is no God is if you claim to have absolute knowledge of all time, matter, and space. And if you had all absolute knowledge of all time, matter, and space, then you would be God, and we know that's not true. That's not the case. So atheism is literally a philosophical oxymoron. It breaks down. But nonetheless, it requires naturalism. And so they supplement uh, uh, some substitute. The Big Bang, is, it, Big Bang theory has been, uh, 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 has been uh, recanted by so many scientists. They know it's an absurdity. They know it's mathematically, uh, in the traditional way it's taught, that it's mathematically impossible but they have no other substitute for it except for God, and so they leave it in the textbooks. Folks, I'm not making this stuff up. You can go and you can read the document. They don't have any other replacement, and they cannot say that God created. That is not a viable option. I propose to you that America ceased to be a Christian nation long, long ago. Long, long ago. And my allegiance is not to this world. I do not dishonor or discredit anything that anyone may do out of good intentions. But my allegiance is not to this world. My allegiance is solely commanded in Scripture to be solely to Christ and Christ alone. And Genesis 1 through 11 has been under assault for centuries in this nation. Thank God, everything that is good about the nation that I am privileged to live in came from people who believed in the validity and the inerrancy of the Word of God. That's a bold statement. I will make till my dying day. I'm not a master historian, but I have read a lot. I know a lot of our history. And there are a lot of people in our nation's history that renounced, denounced, cut out, and threw out Genesis chapter 1 through 11. America is not a Christian nation. Stamping it on our coin does not change it. Wearing it on a t-shirt, or putting the sticker on your car does not make it a reality. You either stand on the Word of God, or you don't stand on anything at all. And right now, there is a demonic influence to throw out and subjugate everything that is godly, that is biblical, that is holy, And I thank God for our Christian foundations, traditions, and beliefs. A lot of people got certain things wrong. There were a lot of people that got a lot of things wrong. But who was wrong were the men and the women. The Word was never wrong. The Word is never wrong. And we can live on the Word. We can stand on the Word because heaven and earth will pass away. But the Word of God 
will never pass away. And if I'm going to die for anything, I'm going to die preaching the Word of God. And everything that I read, all of these topics that I read, I will tell you, there will be an attack. They don't care if I cast out devils. They don't care if I pray people through to the Holy Ghost. The world will not care if I'm baptizing people in Jesus' name. But if you require that there is a God, that there is an absolute authority, that there is an absolute morality, the spirit of the world is going to rise up against that. It's in our culture. It's in our entertainment. It's in our academia. It's in the White House. It's in the Supreme Court. It is in the Capitol building. I've been to those places. I've shaken the hands. I've walked in the offices. And I can tell you, we are not a people. We are not a nation that stands on the word of God. We are a nation of politicians. We are a nation of people that are following after the love of money. And the love of money is the root of all evil. And what we have to have in 2021 is a revival of a love for the word of God. And you've got to be willing to die for the word of God. I've got to be willing to die for the word of God. Our children have to be willing to die for the word of God. If it comes to that. And everybody said in Jesus name. Amen. Stand together with me today. Atheism is taking hold. It is taking hold in our culture. And we cannot deny Genesis just to accommodate it. We cannot deny Genesis just to accommodate it. Amen. Well, I don't know why I said all that. I hope you all love me. I hope I'm still pastor next week, but I just, the Holy Ghost came over me and I felt something in the Holy Ghost. So maybe it's for you who are here. Maybe it's for somebody who's online. Maybe it's for somebody that's going to watch this in two weeks, two months, or two years. But I am here to tell you the word is true. And that means God loves you. God's got a purpose for you. God's got a plan for you. And God wants to bless us. Amen. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. And I pray right now that you would help us to love your word with everything that is in us. More than anything else, God, more than my opinions. I pray, God, that our church, that our church family would know how to understand, God, and to handle the word of God. And I pray right now, let there be an anointing, God, that comes over each of us, over our mind and our heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And everybody said in Jesus' name.